Then Judah came near to him that would be Joseph, the governor, though they did not know it was their brother. Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing, and do not let your anger burn against your servant, for you are even like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age who is young. This, of course, is Benjamin he's talking about. And his brother is dead, which, of course, we're talking about Joseph, not knowing this is Joseph who they're talking to. And he, Benjamin, alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. And so it was when we went up to your servant, my father, that we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, go back and buy us a little food. But we said to him, we cannot go down if our youngest brother is not with us. Then we will go. For we may not see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. And the one went out from me. And I said, surely he is torn to pieces. Speaking of Joseph. And I have not seen him since. But if you take this one also from me and calamity befalls me, you shall bring my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Verse 30. This is the key thought that, Ju- that Judah says now before his brother Joseph, not knowing it's Joseph, but the governor of Egypt. Judah says, Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. So your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord and let the lad go up with my brothers. For how shall I go to my father if the lad is not with me, lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father? As we start this text tonight, and we're looking at really a story of reconciliation, we're looking at a story of redemption, we're looking at a story of rematches, It's the story, really, of God's grace and mercy and how he works with humanity. It is a picture of the gospel, how Jesus Christ comes to seek and save that which is lost and restore lost sheep to himself, like those parables in Luke chapter 16, the lost coin, the lost sheep, the prodigal son. It is a, a story like that and certainly would illustrate that, but it's a little more personal. It's a story about how a family that has been ripped apart by sin Lies, deception, jealousy, backbiting, fights over finances, control, power. How, though it's taken a couple decades, God's going to redeem and save this family and bring everybody back together again, which is, of course, makes it a beautiful story. Most of us know in our own families, as you get down the road, there are many times people are estranged from each other. Many adult siblings are estranged. The larger family is, the more likely it can be that way. Human beings with sin and pride move toward division, but human beings with the Holy Spirit move toward humility and reconciliation. The mark of discipleship is to be love and to be a peacemaker, because Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. And they'll know we're Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we're Christians by our love. So this is what a spirit-filled woman does. This is what a spirit-filled man does, is we're used by the Lord to bring people together. And in our families, 
birth families, biological families, often it's the spirit-filled people who can be persecuted or wrongly blamed or expelled from certain things in the family, blamed for certain things in the family. But the longer you walk with the Lord and the more you walk in the spirit and the more there's Christ working in your life, the more likely it is that you can be used as an ambassador or an element, a source of healing and restoration to your family or to people at work and in various situations you might find yourself in. Because ultimately, disciples of Jesus Christ, male or female, we represent a kingdom of love and ours is a ministry of restoration. You look at the apostolic ministry in the book of Acts with the apostles. As they went out, what was their message? They were restoring people to the Lord through faith in Jesus Christ. To God. He's the mediator, Jesus Christ. And that's the message back then. That's the message tonight of the church. And this context, though in the Old Testament, this is the shadow of things to come, but the fullness is Christ. There's so much we can receive from this text tonight for our lives, for our biological families, for our marriages, for our adult children, for our extended adult siblings, for distant relatives, for co-workers, for people in the body of Christ, maybe we've had falling outs and conflicts with. There is so much application that comes from this. It is a shadow of things to come, but the fullness is Christ. And the most amazing thing about this family is this family began three generations before with a man and a woman who could not have children, Abraham and Sarah. And God gave them the son of promise, Isaac. Laughter. And then that man and his wife, Rebecca, could not have children, and the Isaac pleaded for his wife for decades that they'd have children, and then God gave Rebekah the two sons, the twins, Jacob and Esau. And then, as they grew up, of course, Jacob got the birthright and the blessings, and Esau sought to kill him, but Jacob is the one to whom the promises were made of this expanding family. This family was promised to be more than the stars of the sky, the sands of the earth in Palestine. And that from this family would come kings and nations, and the kings and nations would be a blessing to the world. And of course, Jesus Christ, the king of the kings, king of the Jews and king of kings, is the ultimate blessing, for he brings the nations to himself. The great commission is to go to all nations, and we see in Revelation 5, there's people representing every tongue, tribe, and nation before the throne of God, worshiping Jesus Christ in the next dimension. But the means by which that came about is through this family. And remember, Jacob means heel grabber because he grabbed his brother's heel when they were born as twins coming out of the womb. And then when he wrestled with God, God changed his name to Israel, which means prince of God or governed by God. And we saw last week when he said, you've caused all this grief to me, he's Jacob when he's full of fear. But the moment he has faith and gives it to the Lord, he's referred to by the Holy Spirit as Israel, who he really is in the things of the Spirit. And this family is the apex. This family, you talk about the first family, like the, whoever's in the White House or any country, like the first family. This family, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, name changed to Israel, 12 sons, Judah, tribe of Judah, come down, David, descendants of David, Mary. There it is, the Messiah coming this way. It's an incredible story. This isn't just any family. This is the family where the great-grandfather is the father of faith, for the church of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're not just studying history like uh, the czars of Russia or something. We're not, we're not studying King Peter or Queen Catherine the Great. 
<laughs> or presidents in American history, John Adams or you know, Thomas Jefferson or something like that. This family is miraculous. And it goes all to the virgin birth to make our salvation miraculous. So the imagery of this rematch, this reconciliation, this deliverance, this restoration, all of this is so applicable to us tonight as the church of Jesus Christ. Because it is a shadow of things to come, but we have the fullness of these same things for our lives tonight in the year of our Lord, 2020. So as we look at this text, Judah, as I said, is the first key person. Judah was the one who said, let us sell him into slavery. He sold, I talked about this, I just remind you, he sold the world's best employee into slavery for 20 pieces of silver. The man who had run the most powerful kingdom in the world have a business plan to not only save his country and everyone else around him and his own family was sold into slavery by Judah for 20 pieces of silver. You talk about underestimating the value of somebody in your household or in your place of employment or in your society. Judah's sons were struck down by the Lord. The first two sons of Judah were struck down for being evil. We have a whole chapter that we read on Tuesday night because of the evil of his sons. Judah was at times very harsh when his former daughter-in-law tricked him into having intimacy with her. He didn't even know it was his daughter-in-law. But he didn't fulfill his vow to her that he made when the other two sons had died for the inheritance from the third son to be married to her. He didn't give her the third son. And so he had intimacy with her as if with a harlot. Then he finds out she's pregnant and says, burn her at the stake. And then when she brings out his signet ring and his staff, she goes, well, this is the man who did this. He just says, she is more righteous than I. We studied that on Tuesday night a few weeks ago, and we just said, wow. You know, a lot of times when you're wrong, you don't receive it. Remember in Happy Days, Fonzie could never say he was wrong? I was, roo, roo, roo. if you're from the 70s, you know what I'm talking about. Hey, Fonzarelli, you know, I was, roo, roo, roo. you know, like, you know, we, we don't like to say we're wrong. And one thing you got to say about Judah, and I said it was the turning point of his life, because all the evil he did to his brother would have already happened. When his daughter-in-law came to him and, and said, you did this to me, he didn't justify it. He was ready to burn her at the stake. He just said, you know what? You're more righteous than I. Let her go. It's all good. And then the child that he had with her is in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, which just shows amazing grace. So now Judah went through that, and there was that brokenness early on in Genesis where he's like, you know what? You're more righteous than I. And he came to a brokenness. And now here we are 20 years later after selling his brother into slavery where he had once betrayed his brother for 20 pieces of silver. It was his idea. Remember Reuben said, we don't, Reuben's like, hey, I'm going to release you. I'm going to get you out of this pit. Judah's like, nah, I got a great idea. Why kill him? We can sell him for 20 pieces of silver. For 20 years, nothing but a lot of bad things happened in his life. But here is the rematch, and this is what's really important on this first point tonight, looking at redemption, restoration, and these, these things, reconciliation, is we do get rematches. With the Lord, 
so often we find that our greatest failures, we will have a rematch with those things because God's working on character and moral integrity for all eternity. And where we have failed, he wants to give us another chance and see that again. It's kind of like sports. I often say, like, I can compare so much to sports, but if you, you had a, a, just a colossal disaster, like in the NFL, for example, like the Chargers play the Raiders twice a year and the Chiefs twice a year. So if you had a really bad game, you have a rematch with the same team in your conference. You're like, okay, well, if you're the Eagles, you're like, well, we'll see the Cowboys again. We'll see them last game of the season, right? Like, you get rematches sometimes, especially in league rivalries and stuff like that. You get a, you get a rematch. And in life, you find where maybe your worst failures were of moral failures that you don't want to think about, and they just make you cringe because they're so bad. How you handle the situation or what you did, the choices you made late at night or in the heat of an argument or something. And really, some people make such bad decisions, they might be in jail for years because of those things. It might take years before even society restores you to a chance to have a rematch. But you know, some things, it's, just, it's a moral rematch. It's where the previous great failure happened, and God allows you to face the same thing and see how you handle it a second time. That's exactly what happened here with Judah. It's the same thing. It's the brother. It's the brother of Rachel. And he's standing before Joseph, and Joseph put him to the test. And he passes the test. That's the key thing. He gets a rematch, and he passes the test. The one who sold his brother into slavery is willing himself to go into slavery now for the other brother. The one who betrayed and sold his brother into slavery is now willing to spend the rest of his life in slavery when facing a similar situation. Where in his youth, in the strength of youth, he had a great failure that affected him for decades, his whole life. It affected marriage. It affected parenting. It affected everything. And now, a broken man, he's going to do what's right when faced with the same situation where he had done what was wrong. It's a great lesson for us because it teaches us that it's always too early to quit with the Lord. It's always too early to quit. Don't quit. Don't quit. If we're alive and we have the breath of life, don't quit. There's too much that God wants to do. We all have great failures. You, you, can't, you can't quit competing. You just can't quit. Like I, when I was a coach with surfing, I just, I could handle a lot of things, bad decision making, stuff like that, but I just could not handle quitting. Just because you tripped over yourself and inflicted self-pain, I mean, it's not over. Don't quit. Look at my sister. Don't quit. Just because you're homeless and pushing a grocery cart around Vista and talking to the street like at 7 in the morning, don't quit. The next thing is rehab and finishing it. Don't quit. The God of restoration and revival and renewal and recovery is always ready to move the moment we're ready to, to do the right thing. And he'll give us a rematch with our failures. It's always too early to quit. And you might just feel so steamrolled by failures of the past. We are, love hopes all things, love bears all things, love believes all things, and love never fails. We don't want to ever quit in applying the, the mercy and grace of the Lord to our life, and we don't want to quit get, applying it to other people's lives. We don't ever want to throw anyone under the bus. We want to always hope the best that 
the next time they face something, they'll be triumphant. Remember I told the story about my sister where she started to get clean a few years back and she had bought, got about two months of traction and she smoked pot one time and that put her back on crystal meth, the alcohol, everything, back on the streets, the, the prescription drugs and all that stuff. It set her back for years. One bad decision set her back for years. And I told her when we had this conversation when her license was restored to her the first time in eight years, she told me she got her first tank of gas last week. I filled it up for her when I gave her the, you know, Pop's car. But she texted me, I just, I just bought gas for the first time in eight years. It's a great feeling. Yeah, it is. It is, isn't it? Welcome back. Yeah. <laughs> but I told her, well, you know, you can be sure that you'll see that again. Someone's going to offer you weed somewhere down the road. I mean, you can try and hide yourself in a monastery in, you know, the mountains of Europe, Eastern Europe or something. But somewhere, somewhere, somehow, someone's going to come up to you and offer you weed. You will get a rematch. So be ready for it and make the right decision, right? All you recovering people that ever recover from anything, you know that, right? You always get the rematch. Yeah, I mean, you get the rematch. But we just got to tip our hat to Judah right here because he did the right thing. And that's, that's hope for all of us. It's, it's hope. It's encouraging. Our failures don't define us. What defines us is our faith today and our willingness to make the right decisions today with hope and confidence in the Lord for tomorrow. That's what defines us. So props to Judah. Good job, Judah. We're proud of you. Where you failed in betraying one brother into slavery, you are now willing to go into slavery for the other brother. Praise the Lord. That's a good testimony. That's a gospel track to pass out at the pier. We read on in chapter 45 now. There's more to the story. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, Make everyone get out you know, from me. And so no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. Basically, they're just completely blown away. And Joseph said to his brothers, please come near to me. So they came near, and then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years the famine have been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God, and he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all of his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. This is just an incredible story. Like I said, there's a lot of people that have nothing to do with Jesus or the Bible that do huge productions, you know, like Broadway productions of the story of Joseph and his coat of many colors because it's such a fascinating story. It appeals to humanity in general of hope for something better. But here when he's revealed to his brothers, we see something where we see Judah's redemption or in his rematch his redemption, that in the rematch, he does the right thing. So there is a accountability for that for all of us, and we'll get it. So don't quit. Don't give up. You'll get the rematch, and you can't live in fear, but live in faith. But here with Joseph, we see him being revealed. And when Joseph is revealed to his brothers, we really do see the heart of the gospel, the heart of God, and how God works, because we see the mercy and grace. And, you know, since Joseph is a type of Jesus in so many ways, we do see some interesting things here because when we come to Christ, we're set free. Of course, the Bible says when we give our life to Jesus, 
whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And grace is getting what we don't deserve. Excuse me, mercy is not getting the punishment we deserve, and grace is giving something we don't deserve. So we deserve punishment, the cross. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. So Jesus took that. The wage of sin is death. So Jesus on the cross is God's wrath revealed against all sin and all unrighteousness. That's the wrath we all deserve against sin, against darkness and evil. Every diabolical, sinister, prideful, wicked, evil, licentious thought action of the deepest level was paid for on the cross. The white-collar sins and the deepest black-collar sins all paid on the cross. So mercy is that Jesus died in our place, and as many as received him, he gave them the right to become the children of God. That's mercy. Jesus took our punishment. But then we're told that, that he that he become our righteousness. So God made him who knew no sin become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. So in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, his perfect sinless life is then imputed to our account or reckoned to our account, like our bank account just went way up. And it's not an IRA or an inheritance estate or something like that. It's straight up from the kingdom. It's everything you need for transcending dimensions to be declared righteous. Grace is eternal life. It's the gift of eternal life. We could never earn it. By grace you've been saved, that through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So whatever our life looked like before we came to Christ, we are saved by grace. We receive the mercy by believing Jesus paid the price for our sins as our Savior, and receive the grace because it's a gift to be forgiven, and then his righteousness is given to our account. So every person that ever gives their life to Jesus, this is what happens. Christ takes our punishment on the cross, and then Christ's righteousness is imputed or given to us through his death, burial, and resurrection. In fact, we're told in Romans that we're, he's raised from the grave for our justification. His resurrection is the it's like the trust ceiling of the estate that we're saved by grace, that we're saved. That's what happens. But what happens so often is the devil wants to take us backwards when we're going forward, both in coming to Christ and trying to go forward in Christ. And he wants to beat us up, remind us about relationships we wrecked that we cannot fix, remind us about evil things we did that we cannot go back and change. He wants to remind us about all these things of the past that we have no control over because one thing we certainly have no control over is what we did yesterday. We can only accept responsibility and embrace the stewardship of today. The devil always wants to go back. He wants us to look back like Lot's wife. Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. Don't look back. We press on to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Forgetting what's behind, we look on to what lies ahead. Forward, onward, upward to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Everything is forward. And so the moment... Joseph is revealed to his brothers. He said, hey, listen, it's all good. You didn't do this. God did this. My point isn't really about Joseph, because we've been talking about how he's like this anyways. In chapter 50, we'll get this in great detail. But it's amazing how his maturity to say, you know, these people threw me under the bus. They, they you know, he had so many things. Like, he, you know, he could have said to his brothers, guys, you know, it's like to do five years in prison for attempted rape when I never even touched a woman. I did the right thing. You guys put me there. Judah, you put me in the pit, man. You sold me for 20 pieces of silver. I can have you crucified upside down right now. I can drag you behind your donkeys. Like, I mean, he couldn't have done any of that. But he's like, it wasn't you. I mean, it's so critical that we can, this is a parenthetical thought, but it's so critical that we know everything's from the Lord. 
Ultimately, it's from the Lord. A woman and man receives nothing unless it comes to the filter of the Lord. And we need to believe that. We're believing him to raise us from the grave. We can believe him to know that it's all going to work together for good. And what people mean for evil, God will use for good. He will use a no, a closed door, a public crucifixion to move us toward, yes, the kingdom and Christ. And that's what he did with Joseph. And Joseph embraced it by faith. And Manasseh means, I don't, you know, Manasseh and Ephraim mean, I let it go. I forgot about it. I don't even remember what they did. And I'm fruitful where God put me. That's how we want to be. I let it go a long time ago. And I'm fruitful where I'm at. And he named both his kids for those purposes, for what his heart, what, where his heart was at and what he went through from what his brothers did to him. The maturity, the grace, it's incredible. So really, what he's saying, though, look what he says right here, though. Uh, Do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you did this to me. Guilt is a powerful force. We talked about this Tuesday night. Guilt is powerful. We can have remorse that we didn't do something the right way or we never called that person and they passed away and all these different things. We can, there's just so much that we can feel bad for if we really want to. And if you're not sure what it is, ask the devil to help you and he will. He'll pour it on. If you don't know what you should feel bad for, he'll be happy to remind you what you should feel bad for just to keep you from going forward. But the Lord's always taking us forward. And I love what Joseph says as a type of Christ here. Hey, don't be grieved or angry with yourselves because you did this to me. God sent me before you to preserve life. And that's literally what Christ did on the cross. And some of us are more prone to self-condemn ourselves and beat ourselves up and lament, like, man, if I'd just done this. And in ministry of 33 years, I've met lots of people, ministry to them as a pastor, where they just can't let go of past failures and just apply grace properly and apply mercy properly and get going and going forward. It is really important that we understand grace and mercy are not so much like a get-out-of-jail card, but they are important in their application. They are received. They're not earned. And we just, it's pointless. There's no value in beating ourselves up for something that happened yesterday when we need to go forward today with what the Lord has for us. Many of you know, about five months ago, I went up to Skid Row in Los Angeles to meet my good friend, Pastor Brad Hill. He was my assistant pastor in Virginia Beach. And it was very difficult in Virginia Beach, some of the stuff we went through. Some of you know this, but many of you don't. And in the end, we left Virginia Beach, went to Vermont and started the church in Burlington, Vermont. And uh, Brad made some bad decisions there in Virginia Beach. And they were serious. They were against the law. They were felonies. They weren't just cause for being removed from the ministry. They were causes for being put in jail and he train wrecked a pretty fruitful church that never really ever recovered. It was a mortal wound, just bled out solely over the next few years, but that church never recovered from what he did as the leader of the pulpit. And it is so hard to watch that happen. It just, I can't even tell you. I mean, someone once asked me, do you have any regrets about Virginia Beach? I'm like, well, we went there obeying the Lord. We did the best we could, and we turned it over to someone that the Lord raised up. It's between them and the Lord, but yeah, it hurts, because we once had a church of like 500 people there. We're thriving and flourishing, and it's gone. And Brad was a key part of how that happened. But when I went to Skid Row, I was going there to see him, because he was visiting from Virginia, because he works with homeless people in Virginia, and he's been restored in ministry. And I got to tell you, there's just so much joy to see him, and he kept crying, saying, thank you. Thank you for loving me, and thank you for forgiving me. And I just kept saying, I am so glad to see you, because we were so close. 
We were together at Calvary Vista with Brian Broderson in the drug and alcohol ministry. We were so close. We had such sweet fellowship. He's my first right-hand man, Brad Hill. Before Brian Jameson and before Jeremy Foster and Alex and Sam, it was Brad Hill. Before Jim O'Connor in Vermont, it was Brad Hill. I didn't see him for 20 plus years. And I gotta tell you, when I saw him, it just made me so happy that he chose to go forward. He chose to apply grace and mercy. And he, he basically leads 500 recovering drug addicts who are homeless in a Sunday service in uh, like a DC suburb. Good for you. It's a perfect fit. Good for you. See, I want to look at a Brad Hill and I want to look at my sister and I want to look at anybody and say grace and mercy to you through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's how we want to be. We don't want people beating themselves up. I don't want Brad Hill saying like, I can't do anything. I should just be a drug addict and alcoholic and a loser because I wrecked a church 20 years ago. Well, hey, well, that's changed since 1995, right? I mean, nothing looks the same anyways. Let's just go forward. When Joseph Bollock was removed from ministry in Laguna Beach 20 plus years ago, and he landed at Calvary Coast to Mesa, all the Calvary pastors were like going, why did Chuck bring this guy here? I like Joseph Bollock. I did. I, I mean, I do. Like, I like Joseph Bollock. And it, like, and it was like, but everyone was like, what in the world is Chuck doing? And you know, one of the most valuable lessons I learned from Chuck was the grace and mercy he showed him. I learned a lot in how Pastor Chuck treated Joseph Bollock when he was removed from the ministry 20 years ago. He gave him a night in the sanctuary. Well, you know, you just never know. You know, like Chuck would go for it. What else are we going to do? Are we going to tell Joseph Bach, walk off the Huntington Pier with an anchor tied to your feet? You know what I'm saying? Like, that's not who we are. We don't shoot our wounded. The Holy Spirit wants to restore people. And they may not be restored to once they, what they once were, but he certainly wants to restore them to a place of sanctification, consecration, and calling of some sort of service to the master. You should never forget that. Do not beat yourself up for what you did. God did it. It's all good. This is something we need to be able to apply to our lives personally for failures, present and future, and be able to look at others and apply them the same way. And finally, of course, the third thing that we see here is this last portion of Scripture where they go back to their father and they tell him Joseph is alive and it's incredible. And so I just have to read this text to us and end on this high note. Then they went up, verse 25 of chapter 45, then the brothers went up to, out of Egypt and they came to the land of Canaan to Jacob, their father, and they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive, and he is governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart stood still because he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, was revived. And then Israel said, see, notice it's calling him Israel instead of Jacob, his holy name, his divine name, governor of God. It is enough Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Listen, if you thought your son was dead for 20 years and you found out he was alive, what can you even compare? Like, how can we even wrap our minds around this? It's so unique and so... But, you know, sometimes you have estranged relationships that are estranged for 20 years. My sister and I were estranged for five. She'd leave me these crazy messages. I couldn't take them anymore. It's the only time I ever changed my phone number because of my sister's messages when she called me high on drugs. I was just like, I can't do this, man. I just, 
My mom never gave up because she's a mom, but I'm an adult sibling. I'm like, you know what? Then my mom would just tell me, Joe, you just need to, when you see her on the streets, it's really easy. Just hug her, tell her you love her. That's all you need to do. And that's what I did for a couple years. It was like my sister was dead. Now she's alive. And I don't have to face all this stuff after my mom's decease alone. There are relationships that sometimes might be dead for decades. But you know, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, the love of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the promises of God, you don't know what relationships God might resurrect from the dead. Because this was a relationship resurrected from the dead. And the joy is unspeakable. It's heart-stopping. We're told that. And you know, remember, we just saw Jacob saying, all these things are against me, right? Like, all these things are against me. We can never win the big one. We always lose the big game. We turn the ball over. We always, something always goes wrong. We can never win it all. And you know what? On this day, he won it all. Jackpot. God wants to do so much more than we could think or ask and is able to do abundantly above all that we could think or ask for his glory, the church of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I think we dumb down his person, his character, his power, and his promises. I think so often we settle for so much less and we look in the mirror and say, all these things are against me and we should be looking up and saying, God, you are glorious God. You are El Shaddai, God Almighty. You are the king and you got this. Joseph lives. We're not done with Israel yet, Jacob, but when the last time we see him before he steps into eternity, when he's probably in assisted living or memory care, he's just praising God and saying what a good journey it's been. Everything God wanted to do was done by the time he stepped into eternity as a patriarch. And so I just want to encourage us tonight that we see the rematch and redemption comes from the rematch and not to give up and quit and not to quit on other people, but to hope all things and believe all things. We also see the mercy and the grace that Joseph showed and said, look, I know it was evil what you did to me, but God is good and he's bigger than that. Don't beat yourselves up and we need to receive that for ourselves and we need to be willing to show that to others. And then we see there's a resurrected joy. When God's ultimate plans come to pass where all things work together for good to those who love him and are being conformed to the image of his son, when they run their course, when it's all, the story's not done yet. Not for this country, not for this planet, not for this church, not for the Calvary movement, not for the global body of Christ. The story's not done. It's, it's, it's just going right now. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And who knows what heart-stopping resurrection is around the corner to bless our lives. Who knows what God's going to do in your life to stop your heart and give you so much joy you can't even breathe. You ever had like, oh, how to tell this story? But 20 years of coaching with a great U.S. team that could never win the big one and then coaching the last place team in the world, Chile, and getting respectable with it. And then taking a team of a bunch of alternates and JV athletes to Japan to the world championship expecting nothing. And on that last day, 287 heats, that last heat would decide whether or not we might win a gold medal. And when Noah Hill got second place in that final, we won gold. And I just thought, it really happened. Like, I wore the medal all the way home. I wore it on the plane. I came through customs integration. Like, <laughs> you know, like, I was like, 
Cole, Cole, Cole was like, dude, take your medal off. I'm not taking the medal off. See, you're, you're 17. You care what people think. I'm 57. I don't care what anyone thinks. I'm wearing a medal through customs and immigration. Like, I said, Cole, how many times are you going to come home and you're a world champion? Put your medal on. When we came out of LAX and all the parents were waiting downstairs, I told them, hey, put your medals on. We're going to walk down that escalator. You're going to walk down world champions. You may never come off a plane again being a world champion. And your parents have done so much for you. You're going to be standing on that escalator holding up signs saying congratulations. They have balloons. Put your medal on. All right. You know, they're like, and we came, and there they were, all the parents. Like, it really happened. I wore the medal all the way home, and then I just hang it on the wall. Now it's in a drawer. You just don't know that resurrection that God's going to do in your life will just go. That's exactly what happened. It took his breath away. So much joy around the corner. Just, it's right there. That's who we serve. That's his heart. Our God's a blessing God. Don't miss it.